You know, people sometimes say to me, and I'm sure they've said to many of you, that I don't believe that the Bible really is God's Word. It's just a book that a group of men concocted 2,000 years and, and more ago. Now, normally the people who say this are blatantly prejudiced. And almost without exception, they've never actually read the Bible for themselves. Because you see, that I believe there is so much evidence in the Bible itself apart from any other evidence which absolutely contradicts this view. For instance, if the Bible is just the product of the, the minds of men, then why is it that so often simple, uneducated, first-century men were capable of a depth of thought that's beyond the ability of the most sophisticated 21st, 21st century philosophers? And why is it that these men seem able to provide solutions to modern problems that our finest thinkers either see now as insoluble or are only maybe just beginning to get to grips with. For instance, one of the big issues of, of today and has been for a number of years now is the environmental issue, isn't it? The problems of pollution, of climate change, global warming, etc., etc. But for thousands of years, the Bible has declared, made clear, the way that man should actually live in right relationship with this world. That is, that this world isn't, or at least shouldn't be, something that we just mindlessly, at our whim, exploit. No, but rather, recognizing that this world isn't ultimately actually ours, that it belongs to the God who created it, so we are to look after it, as stewards, that is, we're to look after it lovingly and caringly. We use it, for God has entrusted it to us to be used. But if we are wise, we take care not to abuse it. That is not to step out of the God-given limits we've been given. And the world that we actually live in today is a tragic physical illustration of what actually happens when we do. But one other thing that for me underlines the Bible's authenticity and authority, and this is more directly related to what we're looking at this evening, is those kind of, of rough edges that sometimes we find in the Bible. Things that just wouldn't be there if this was some kind of first century contract, something that some men had concocted and put together. Now, the kind of thing I'm talking about is, is found here at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3. For you see, this chapter comes just after Paul's been expounding, as we, as we looked at last time together, God's great purpose to form one new united people of God. Out of once, we're once a bitterly divided people, in this particular historical instance here, Jew and Gentile, to form this one great new united people of God and to deal with every division between them in doing that. Now, as you look as, at chapter 3 as a whole, it's clear that Paul's intention here, immediately following this, was to pray for this new people. For notice how, how verse 1 starts. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. But then, notice how verse 14, when Paul actually moves into this prayer, notice how it starts. Again, it's for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So really then, these 
intervening verses are a digression. And it would appear that, that what happened was that as Paul began in verse 1 with, with just a touch of his own personal story, well, that this triggered him off and, and moved him to share in, in greater depth than he perhaps intended his own involvement in this great purpose of God. And it's this that we're going to look into at least a little bit tonight. But before we, we do that, let me just draw your attention to something that's not actually directly related to this, but that I think is important. That is, notice that in verse 1, Paul here describes himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, the actual reality is that this letter was written at a time when Paul physically, when Paul humanly speaking, was actually a prisoner of Nero, a prisoner of the Roman emperor with the background to this laid out for us in Acts 25. So, so what does this tell us? Well, surely this tells us that Paul never allowed this world, that Paul never allowed his own personal life circumstances to define his life or to control him. Rather, that Paul always set his life in the far bigger context of God's sovereignty and God's glory. Paul never spent a lot of time, it seems to me, wondering why is this happening to me? Because he knew why. Rather, his approach seemed to be, I'm living in a broken and sinful world where the powers of evil are active and are at work. So because of that, bad things do happen to good people. And they certainly happen to God's people. So are people who, because they belong to God, Satan's attentions are focused on. But God is sovereign. He has his hand upon me. God stands with me. So how then, this is Paul thinking, how then in this situation can I live for his glory? That seems to be Paul's approach to living the the Christian life that's reflected here in what he says and also right throughout the New Testament. And then, in verse 13, at the end of this section, Paul there develops a little his understanding of what this view involves and what it then leads to. As there he talks of, my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Now what I believe Paul's getting at here is of how he, as a, as a champion, faithfully suffering for the sake of this new united people of God, how he then, by doing this, encourages them in turn to live faithfully, and that this then brings them glory. This then brings them life's most precious commodity, glory in the eyes of God. God takes pleasure in them. But you know what I have to say? That this link between suffering and glory, how we, though, though certainly not enjoying our suffering, but how by living faithfully in it, how we then by this bring glory into our experience. Glory in the sense of God's pleasure in us. And also glory to the church. And most importantly, ultimately, glory to the Lord. This link isn't as prominent today I believe, as it has been and it should be 
in the life and teaching of the church. But you see today that the main emphasis seems to be on, on things like healing and about our need to, to seek deliverance, how we should be delivered from all difficulties and problems. And that, that, to, a good, to the degree that that is a, maybe a recovery of a dimension of, of biblical teaching. But you know, I do believe that it can become and largely has become an overemphasis today. For isn't the basic message of the New Testament that the glory of the resurrection followed, was born out of the suffering of the cross? And doesn't the New Testament teach that God can use the hardships and the suffering, that he's able to use the failures and frustrations of life, he's able to use these things to form us as we turn to him in them more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Isn't that what the New Testament teaches? I tell you, I believe it does. And so while as Christians, again, we shouldn't desire suffering. And while to hope and to pray for healing and deliverance certainly isn't wrong, yet neither should we be surprised by suffering. Or by the fact that generally, rather than delivering us, God stands with us and God wants to work in our suffering, to reveal his glory. But let's get back to the, the main focus of this passage. That is Paul's personal involvement in God's great purpose to form in Jesus Christ one new united people of God. And let's begin by focusing first in verse 1 to 6 on the mystery made known to him. For Paul makes it clear in, in these verses here and beyond his awareness of being given insight by God's revelation, by God's opening of his eyes into, into this mystery. Now, now let's at this point make clear again, we did it earlier, but we'll do it again, the difference that there is between our English understanding of the word mystery and the Greek understanding, which influenced Paul here as he wrote. So you see then in English, a mystery is usually something dark and obscure, something that's secret. What is mysterious is often inexplicable or even incomprehensible. The Greek understanding, though, of this same word is, is quite different. Let me just share, make it simple, Warren Wearsby's comments. And this is what he says, that in the New Testament, a mystery is not something eerie or inscrutable but rather as a truth that was hidden by God in times past and is now revealed to those who are in his family. A mystery is a sacred secret that is unknown to unbelievers, but both understood and treasured by the people of God. Now you see, this is the kind of mystery that Paul says in verse 5 has been revealed by the Spirit by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And in verse 3 he says, has been made known to me, to Paul, by revelation. Now that's a, an interesting distinction because seemingly when you look at it, there's very little difference between the two because of course all revelation comes by the Spirit. Our eyes are opened to God's truth by his Spirit. However, I believe that there are two basic reasons why Paul here drew this kind of subtle distinction, if you like, between himself and the rest of the apostles 
and prophets. And one, of course, was Paul's sense of humility about his own apostleship. That he saw himself, as he says in other places, as, as one untimely born, as a form of blasphemer and persecutor of Jesus and his church. And this sense of humility, even of unworthiness, is, is brought right out, open, out into the open here in verse 8, where Paul speaks of himself as less than the least of all God's people. So that at least partly explains then why Paul differentiates here between himself and the other apostles. As for the other reason Paul did this, well, we'll just leave that until we explore just a little bit more what this mystery actually is. And it's not difficult to uncover. For as we said in, in biblical times, a mystery wasn't something dark and unfathomable, but rather something that was once unknown, but that's now known and treasured by the people of God. So what is this mystery? Verse 4 tells us, it's the mystery of Christ. And then verse 6 spells out precisely what this mystery is. And again, it's that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. So the mystery then is that which Paul's actually already explored in chapter 2. But here develops slightly, given a, an edge of sophistication. The mystery is God's purpose to create one new people in Jesus. To create a people for whom all division is now ended. Anything that used to divide them is forgotten because now they are united in Jesus Christ. But let's now go back to the second reason why Paul differentiated between the revelation that he received and that given to the rest of the apostles. And the clue here is found again in verse 1, where Paul describes himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. You see, it's all to do with the special burden that was laid upon Paul, the special commission that was given to Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was given the specific task by God of drawing in these Gentiles despised by the Jews, God's former people, in order to establish this one new people of God. And it was this, this particular aspect, this dimension of the gospel, that it is God's will to break down in Jesus Christ every barrier and division between men and women. It was largely actually this, rather than his preaching of salvation through Christ the Messiah. It was actually this that got Paul in particular into trouble again and again in his ministry and eventually landed him here in prison. I mean, just look at Acts 22. There in Acts 22, Paul is being pursued by his fanatical Jewish opponents. And finally, he's called to make a defense of himself before them and the, the wider Jewish authorities. So Paul then shares basically his faith story, all that's happened that brought him to Jesus. And everything goes relatively well until he gets to verse 21, where he says, Then the Lord said to me, Go 
I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The Jewish reaction straight away, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Now, later, for the other apostles and for the church, preaching Jesus, salvation through Christ, got them into plenty of trouble. But for Paul at this point, himself formerly a fanatical Jew, for Paul it was the proclamation of the church. It was the proclamation particularly of God's new community in Christ rather than actually preaching salvation itself that landed him into hot water. Now think about this. Doesn't this tell us something important? Doesn't this tell us of the power there is potentially in God's people as they live together, truly live together as a united, spirit-filled community? the potential in God's people as they live together as they should, united together in the love of Christ, united by the power of the Spirit. I mean, if the devil and the powers of evil are so afraid of this that they arouse such opposition against it, then doesn't this tell us what a powerful witness, what a powerful weapon, a united family, people of God, a truly godly community actually is in the hands of God. I want to say to you, let's get any idea in our mind, any thinking that leads us to think that the church is just something we go to. Let's get rid of that. It's not biblical. It's not New Testament. Rather, let's aim to be a family, a community united together in Christ. And once we've done that, in view of what the Bible tells us about the big things that make us one in Christ, then let's never let little things divide us. Let's never do that. One final thing before we we move on here. That is that some people are puzzled by what Paul says here in verse 5 where he talks of that which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Because you see, people then say here, but but surely this was known. Surely it was known. For in the Old Testament, God did reveal, as we noted and looked at last time we looked at Ephesians, God did say that he had a purpose for the Gentiles. And Jesus did speak of the inclusion of the Gentiles and he actually commissioned his followers to go and make them his disciples. All of that is true. But the newness of the revelation to Paul and then to the other apostles comes in the degree, comes in the extent to which this is true. For you see, by looking at the Old Testament, by looking at the the teaching of Jesus, we might manage to speculate about there being some kind of peaceful coexistence between Jew and Gentile. But nowhere is there the suggestion or is it made clear that the two will become one. Nowhere is it made clear that there will be total equality, that there will be no distinction. It's not. That revelation is held back until the right time. 
Because you see, given too early, and it would have greatly hindered the message of the gospel. It would have greatly hindered the truth of Christ being heard. Because it would have torn the Jewish Gentile world apart. So it's held back until the right time. Until the time of Paul. So that then was the mystery made known to Paul. But it wasn't the end for him. No, for as well as being by God's grace given this tremendous unmerited privilege of insight into God's purposes, also by God's grace, Paul is commissioned to make known what has been made known to him. As he says in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. So we'll move on from the mystery made known to him to look at the ministry entrusted to him. So what was Paul's ministry? What was that which was an unmerited privilege received by grace? That which he knew he couldn't fulfill in his own strength, but only, verse 7, by the working of God's power. Well, I think it was a, a threefold ministry. First, verse 8, it was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The first part of Paul's ministry then was, as we, we've just touched on, to preach with the basic meaning of that being to announce good news, to announce, to make clear the gospel, to make clear to the Gentiles, to those who were once outside of and totally ignorant of the purposes of God, to make the gospel clear to them. And this gospel is great news to them. Great news to us who follow in their footsteps. For you see, those who once were spiritually impoverished now become, through Christ, possessors of, there in verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that word unsearchable literally means in the original, that which cannot be tracked down, that which cannot ever be fully explored, that which is like the earth too vast, like the seas too deep to fathom. And as for what these riches actually are, well, what we've already looked at in Ephesians 1 and 2, is as good a place to begin as any. For laid out for us there are some of the riches that are made available to us through Christ's victory on the cross. That is the victory over sin that's now ours in him. The reconciliation with God that Jesus brings and makes possible. The peace that he alone is able to establish between men. With all of this being just a foretaste of all that's to come. These things and more than we could ever number. These are the riches that are ours in Christ. You know, I, I am convinced that as Christians we need to learn to focus and to realize and celebrate far, far more just how rich and how blessed we are in Jesus. And then we have to remember that the riches that we have are ours and given to us, not just to hold and look at and rejoice in for ourselves, but rather these are given to us for us to share. Let's focus more and more on what we have in Christ, not what's going wrong in our lives. Let's focus on what God has done. Because I tell you, I believe if we do this, then like Paul, we won't have to think about how we're going to be able to evangelize. We don't have to force ourselves to evangelize, come up with schemes to evangelize. 
Brother, if that love and gratitude is alive in us, we won't be able to stop ourselves but share this Jesus. The second aspect of Paul's ministry we, we find in verse 9. It says to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now, there are three important differences, I think, here between this aspect of, of, of Paul's ministry and what we've just looked at. First, before he talked about preaching the good news, here he speaks of making plain, the idea being of enlightening those who are lost and trapped in spiritual darkness. Second, before he shared what we've spoken of, the unsearchable riches of Christ, here he speaks of make it sharing the administration that is the plan of this ministry. So you see here there's a, a narrowing down, a narrowing down just to concentrate on one element of the gospel message. That is this, this mystery, this purpose of God to create this one people without barrier or distinction. And third, before Paul's ministry was in particular to the Gentiles here, he talks of this ministry in terms of being to everyone. That is, to all men. To bring all men face to face with this truth, whether they like it or not. Now, putting all this together, it would seem to me that Paul here saw a significant part of his ministry being to deal with those who found this vision of one new united people of God particularly hard to grasp, to understand, and to put into practice. And his, in his case, of course, this was his fellow Jews who were so resistant, some of them even who came to Christ, who were resistant to this idea of there being no division, no barrier between them and the rest of mankind. And you know, I, I want to tell you, you might feel this is a bit irrelevant. I don't think it is. I believe this aspect, this ministry of Paul, is something that continues to be relevant in the church today. Because I, I believe there are still Christians around who are resistant to what right now being a united people of God actually involves. That is, there are Christians who are willing to receive for themselves God's gift of forgiveness in Christ, but then who are actually very reluctant to release forgiveness to others. There are Christians who know that God accepts them with all their shortcomings and all their imperfections, who know that he works with them to transform them, but who knows that he loves them and accepts them as they are. But why is it then that some Christians seem to have such great difficulty in accepting others with their imperfections and their differences? From us. Why is it that some Christians find it difficult to accept others unless they're almost mirror images of themselves? Well, I believe here the third aspect of Paul's ministry brings all of this together because it's the fact that, that Paul's heart, Paul's commitment, as is the Lord's, is for the church. You see, Paul here, as does the Lord, Paul treasures the church see what he says in verse 10 
that his intent was that now through the church, the manifold witness of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That sounds kind of complicated. But you see what, what Paul's actually getting at, what he's actually saying here. What he's saying is that it is through the church, that it's through this new community of God, it's through this new people of God that are going to be drawn from every race, every creed, every color around the world, that it's through the church that God intends to open the eyes of the unseen spiritual powers, not just worldly powers, but unseen spiritual powers, into the greatness of his glory and power, to the wonder of God's plan. You see, God's original creation was spoiled. It was thwarted, the perfection of that creation, by our fall into sin. And it's as if, this is what Paul's saying, it's as if through his new creation, and particularly through his masterpiece, that is the church. It's as if through the church, through this new community of God, as we live together, as God calls us to do, it's as if through us, through the church, God is saying, not just to the world, but to all the spiritual powers and forces in the heavens, as if God said, see what I can do. I'm not beaten by sin. I'm not defeated by the powers of evil. For see, here, look, here is a new people, united in my love. So you see, the church is supremely important to God. And because of that, it was supremely important to Paul. He was totally committed to seeing God's church, God's community, established on earth and living as God called them to. And whenever there were misunderstandings, whenever there were wrong attitudes that hindered or harmed the church, read the New Testament. Paul would not rest until they were dealt with in a godly, gracious way. The church, as God's servant, was Paul's priority on this earth. Now I want to ask the question, how much does this matter to us? You know, is the church something we can take or leave? Do we maybe think of the church in terms of being Somewhere we go to, you know, meetings that we attend. Is that what the church is for us? Well, I tell you, if that's the way we're thinking, we've got it all wrong. The church isn't about a building. The church is about building a new community. The church is about God's community. The church is about us being and becoming more and more a loving, giving, forgiving servant community of God. As I want to tell you, the church matters so much to God that he gave Jesus for it. He gave Jesus for, for us individually, but he also gave Jesus for this new community. And the church mattered to Paul. It mattered so much that he devoted his whole life to building the church of Jesus Christ for the sake of the glory of his name. And the church should matter to us in the same kind of way. You see, now we live in a day where 
the real meaning of the church is, is slowly being rediscovered. But if that's going to take hold, if the church is again going to come to life and come into its own, be what God has called it to actually be, then that will only happen as there are those who, like Paul, are ready to give everything to see that biblical vision actually come to life, come into being. And really what we're asking is, are you ready to be one of those people? Are you ready to join with Paul? Are you ready to make that commitment to be that church of Jesus Christ, that united, loving family of God? My prayer is that we all are, each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that, Lord, you call us individually to faith in Christ, but then you call us to be your people. And we know that there is a church throughout all time, throughout all history, right around the world, that you also call us to be part of individual communities. As there were church the church in Ephesus and Colossae, Laodicea, etc., etc. So you call us into separate Christian communities to be a family together and then to relate together to other believers. Lord, help us not to give in to the temptation to just go through the motions of being your people. Help us to really seek to live as your people, the people of God, the family of God, the body of Christ in this day. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.